First of all, before I share the topic, share a little bit about Tikkun and our transition and what we're doing because uh, Mike Bickle has suggested that I do this. We might do it a little bit Saturday night, but we're not going to take as much time Saturday night, but with those who especially came here. Um, it has been my portion in the kingdom of God to give leadership in the Messianic Jewish movement for over 30 years now, primarily in the United States. I think some of you know that. Uh, you know that I was the pastor of one of the first Messianic Jewish congregations in North America. I think we were the fourth or fifth congregation, and that was only two, two and a half years after the others were already there. And we were one of the two that were Presbyterian-related. How many know that if you go back to 1973, half of the Messianic Jewish congregations in North America were Presbyterian? There were four, and two of them were Presbyterian. <laughs> so it wasn't that grand, you know. So that's where I was. And um, the Lord blessed us with a, a vision of covenant continuity Community in covenant continuity and leadership. And I know sometimes people feel that covenant continuity is a bondage and we want to be independent and just say God told me and go here and there. And we believe that you need to put a governor on the God told me independent orientation. I mean, ultimately, everybody's got to make a decision on the basis of what you believe God is telling you. We understand that. And we understand that conscience is the final arbiter of the leading of God. But nevertheless, we want to see continuity where we at all can because people get to the end of their lives and they're extremely lonely and we want to see covenant continuity. It's a high value that we've had for 30 years. So when we were called from Chicago, the congregation we pastored for the first five and a half years, to Washington, D.C., um, it was a very hard thing because we had really built some covenant continuity there and the uh, people in the Chicago congregation are still close friends of ours. We'll probably go back and preach there. Still have relationship with them some 25 years later, more than 25 years later. And then uh, in Washington, I was uh, became the first leader of the first National Union of Congregations. And I still serve there on their seminary board and do things for them. But I really don't have time to do what I did for about the first nine years of that organization. I gave, you know blood, sweat, and tears to see that thing succeed. And um, But the Lord showed us in the early 80s while I was leading that, the restoration of the church, the importance of the church in restoration. You'll hear me preach about this on Saturday night. If you come to the Sunday morning service, you'll hear me preach more about it. I'm one of the few Messianic Jews that preaches all the time about the restoration of the church. It's just something that's captured my heart. And... Um, so the Lord showed us that. We began to develop an order of apostolic stream ministry, kind of a fivefold understanding of a stream of congregations that would be related to leadership team that would be recognized. And God gave us a wonderful group of people that have been with us for many, many years. Um, uh, several of them are here, uh, but the team at that time that I was leading uh, two of those team members were Eitan Shishkoff and Asher and Trader, who were part of the Tikkun team. Uh, David Rudolph was added later to that team. Uh, and then we have now an American team that oversees the American congregations and an international team, which is an accountability board, really, for all of us leading different things. 
So we sent Eitan and Asher to Israel. They have been extremely fruitful. And I never really thought that I was called to go to Israel. This was kind of a shockeroo. It was a kind of a bit of a surprise that I received citizenship. Does anybody understand that if you're internationally known in the Messianic Jewish movement that you're not one of the highest, the highest uh, candidates for citizenship in Israel? Some of you may be ignorant of that. The Interior Department can meet you in the airport and just put you back on the plane if they want to. And, uh, but God just in extraordinary ways gained citizenship for us. You'll see a picture of my daughter in a minute who serves in the Israeli army. We say of my daughter Simcha, she is the sweetest young lady to ever carry an M16. <laughs> she called us up back in December and she says, well, I'm on guard duty. This week, I've got, to, I've got to go with a loaded, my M16 has to be loaded, not just with the magazine on the side, and we're actually riding by the, the house of the president and officials in Israel and guarding them during Sukkot. So it was, not Sukkot, I mean Hanukkah, during Hanukkah. It was really something. But um, she teaches school now for the army. She teaches them about the army, becomes a counselor to them, and you'll see that. But anyway, we got citizenship. And the Lord began to develop for us some sense of what we're going to be doing in Israel. And really, it's an amazing thing. But after, uh, I'm trying to think now, how many years? After 16, 17, after 17 years, God is establishing that Asher and Trader and I will be in the same congregation in the same ministry again. He was one of my elders Seventeen years later, we're going to be joined together in the same congregation. Can you imagine that? Because he was sent out to plant under us to the north in 1987. And this is what we are envisioning. Now, I'll be doing different things. I'll be doing a lot more of the mentoring of uh, leaders around the land, trying to be a catalyst to bringing people together in unity. I'll be going to the north as well to serve Eitan Shishkoff and his leadership. But in Jerusalem, our vision is to do a training school, discipleship training school. And one of the more recent members of our team, we've only been relating to him for 14 years, is David Rudolph. And David will also be helping us because he is one of the most brilliant disciplers of anybody I've ever known. And he's going to be flying in from Cyprus, Cyprus and helping us in a discipleship training school for Hebrew-speaking only Israelis that are young, to be training them for leadership in the ministry and in society, but giving them a full Holy Spirit orientation, Torah life in the New Covenant, but in a way that fits Israeli, but zeal for evangelism and passion. And if you know the passion of Asher and Trader, he's going to be imparting that. Now, the thing that... Asher has said is that he cannot do this without me because the vision is a 24-7 prayer center. I think it will be connected to Rick Riding some way, and we're still talking about that, but we're very bonded to Rick. We, we're looking toward that, that 24-7 prayer center will be linked to Kansas City here. Uh, we're looking to do a full congregation. We're looking to, do, and, and which will be very house-based because we want it to be deep in discipleship. The training school, and then the training school will lead to a Bible college for a year and a half, which I will lead. Uh, 
and and uh, it's really a, a massive undertaking because you're talking about eventually scholarshiping young people, having the facilities, and um, for this. So we're talking about millions of dollars that has to come from somewhere. But the big challenge right now is to get me supported to go over there. Because as Asher says, I can't do this without you. And uh, we're going to do this in partnership. So everything that's raised beyond what I need to live there is going to go into the same work. In other words, when you talk about raising money for the ministry, Asher and I are raising money for the same thing now. Except... The start of that is to get me to be able to live there. So that's where we're at with that. Why? Because I have to be replaced in the American network. Uh, if you sign up for the newsletter that I have, you'll get news of what's happening with that. And I have them here. And um, I'll give them to those of you who would like to have them when you raise your hand. We would love it if you would pray for us. Now, there are people who say, we'd love to pray for you, but we can't give any money. I'm always amazed at people who say they can't give any money. I try to give money to every mailing list I'm on. Patty sometimes gets frustrated to me, but I know what it's like to be on the other end. So I get them. As long as I know it's legitimate ministry that's doing it right and I know who they are, I want to give them something every time I get a letter. So everybody can give a dollar. Everybody can give, probably everybody can give five when they get the newsletter. So it's not a requirement, but be gracious and give something. You know, that's what I would say because it helps us get established. So we're going to give these out. But I wanted to give you an idea of the scope of what God has developed out of Tikkun, which is the sending agency into Israel. Now, we don't call the ministries in Israel Tikkun because we want them to be uh, not identified with a foreign-based organization. And we're based in the United States, but we are all together Tikkun. We call it Rivive Israel under Asher, Ochalei Rachamim under Eitan, but all of it together is us. We're all the same thing. Gateways Beyond is our work for relief and rescue and discipleship in Cyprus under David. He's not on here. Uh, you'll hear uh, David tomorrow night and Asher tonight. But the thing is, uh, David's going to come to Jerusalem and help us. We go over to Cyprus and help train him. So we're all linked. We're kind of like communists. I, don't, I hope this isn't true. See, the communists produced a lot of different organizations, but they were all the same thing. But they didn't tell you that, or I'm telling you that. You understand? We're, all, we're just a team together. And, and we're trying to pull off something wonderful in Israel, and it's already begun. And yet we have to keep the American network strong. We're also working on Bible colleges and other things. But we're going to run this little PowerPoint for you. If we can turn out the lights, I hope it doesn't take hours for the lights to come back for the teaching, but you really won't see this well if the lights are on. So we're going to catch the lights here, and we're going to give you a little sense of the scope of what I'm involved in I must be crazy to be involved in all these things, right? Ira, Ira helps lead our American network, but, but I mean, I just, these are the open doors and we're trying to do it. So go ahead and I'll stand back here and uh, give you some idea of what we're doing. Do we got the right one? It should run automatically. 
Now, that's the prophetic one that Patty has. So we want to go back again. Remember, it was the one that says, Tikkun Dan. You probably know how to do that better. Declare as the Lord. How did that get on there? We had it up there before. There was a little tab that you showed me. Can we go back to that other screen? Okay. Tikkun Juster. There it is. Now we got it. Very good. This should run automatic. This is our automatic one where I don't have to push the buttons. Got to get a push the button one because sometimes it goes too fast. Every copy we make is different. I don't know why. It's the same on the hard disk, but every one comes out different. Probably a Microsoft thing. I don't know. So did we start. It's opening. It's slowly. There it is. Tikkun International. All righty. We lost it. There he is. Now, this should do it. There we are. The most handsome couple in their 50s in the world. To work towards world redemption through encouraging the proper relationship of Israel with her Messiah and the proper alignment of the church in relationship to Israel working first with the saved remnant from among the Jewish people and then with the saved remnant from among the nations. Strategy, establishing, educating, supporting, partnering, reconciling. Give you a little idea of that. And this time the, the pace is a little slower than the last time we showed it. Same disk, but different computer. Establishing an American network of Messianic Jewish congregations. Equipping, educating, empowering, and you'll see some of the things that we're doing here in that regard. Establishing. So, here are some of the congregations. There's Jerry Miller. He's been part of our network. He was a pastor with us at Beth Messiah. For over 20 years now, he's in Florida as part of our network. And Colorado Springs, aren't they here? Isn't Rick Trimble here? Ah, the Trimble's here? Yeah, Colorado Springs. Are they here? I think they were going to be here. I haven't seen them either. Baltimore, Maryland. Wonderful Eastern Jewish city. David is here, yes. Knoxville, Tennessee. Get a little idea of some of the congregations around our network. And uh, Long Island, New York, just outside of New York City. Extraordinarily Jewish area. And a Messianic Jewish congregation in Jerusalem. Yeshua-centered, Holy Spirit empowered, outreach-motivated, family community, apostolically connected, Torah-observant, worship-prayer-directed. Of course, these are our values. And that's not our meeting place there, the Gold Dome building. Just thought I'd let you know. Just thought I'd let you know that. We may ask how much they want to sell it for, but 
The Messianic Jewish Bible School targeting Hebrew-speaking young people. And this is where we see future leadership and breaking through the glass ceiling of multiplication, having the time to give the full impartation that Israel society doesn't give you. There's Asher, the 24-7 discipleship, gifts of the Holy Spirit, evangelism, Messianic Jewish theology, and leadership. And this is going to be quite something. There's my daughter in the right upper pic, the right one in the upper picture in the Israeli army. To have these young soldiers straight from the army for six months, room, board, and tuition. This is the graduation from the advanced program where you get to be a corporal-like person. My son who died, that we named a fund for scholarships after him, the Samuel Peter Memorial Fund, which we want to see scholarships, some of these folks. And this is a healing center for the traumatized that Patty is very committed to seeing happen, connecting to. Comfort through deeds of love and kindness. She got a heart for this when she was just uh, just down the street from one of the suicide bombings at the coffee shop and went down there, was interviewed on the British Broadcasting Network. And she said she wanted to be in Israel to identify with the pain of the people. Tikkun leadership advances. Mike Bickle spoke at one of these years ago. We had Bob Jones there. He scared half of the people half to death and blessed the rest. (laughs) They had never seen anything like that before. But it was a great time. And then uh, resource materials. Some of the books we published that you all want to buy this week. Some of these covers are already old covers. The books that are up here, most of them are out there. But um, I'll, I'll say a few words about the books that are on the book table, and we'll show a few tonight. But Jewish Roots, Israel, the Church in the Last Days, which was the book that really connected us to Mike Bickle. When he read that book, he said, this is my theology. And Jack Hafer said it's one of the best books written from a Messianic perspective. So you want to get out there and get a hold of some of these books. These are the Bible schools that we're sponsoring in uh, Argentina, Brazil, and Odessa, Ukraine. This is Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Very successful congregation that has spurred we, uh, others. We now have 12 congregations led by graduates of our school in Brazil. This is Odessa, Ukraine. The Sviantex who are training to be apostolic. There I am teaching in Ukraine. Not the most luxurious place in the world, but what a great place for fruit. Leaders in the land who have begun a good work. The Shishkos in Haifa. These are who are networking with the Ridings in Jerusalem, the Entraders in Tel Aviv. Because Asher's with the Sarkarams and another Tikkun emissary, we're with the Sarkarams. Um, so this is the Tel Aviv congregation full of uh, folks. Uh, oh, this is the Haifa congregation. What happened to the Tel Aviv one? But anyway, this is Haifa. I can see a lot of the kids here. And you'll see some more here. And this is north of Haifa in the Cryote under Eitan Shishkov. Probably pushing 300 now. And now this is back to Tel Aviv with Asher. One day he was preaching. Patty took these messages, and he was doing a little bit of a illustration there. But uh, there is Ari and Shira who we're partnering with. I serve on his accountability board. And let's see what we got here, if we can get another slot up of the congregation. Very vibrant, probably about 150. Like I said, I think we're pushing about 300 in Ojale now 
and about 100 in their second plant, mostly Russian. This is about 150, almost, I would say, majority Sabras, the most effective congregation with the Sabras. And this is the 24-7 prayer center with the ridings in Abu Tor, just south of the old city of Jerusalem, which we connect to as well. A lot is beginning to happen, and we're beginning to see fruit. Do you know the average Jewish person today in Israel is more open to the gospel than the average secular American? Gentile. The average Gentile American is not as open to the gospel as the average Jew. When you, when you say to an American Jew uh, that, they should, that you're Jewish and you believe in Jesus, they'll say, you traitor. But when you say that in Israel, they'll say, did you serve in the army? It's a whole different response. If you served in the army, then you earned the right to talk to us. Toward Jerusalem Council, too, is our effort uh, with several other international leaders to reconcile the church with the Messianic Jewish community, to repent of what happened in the early centuries in that rejection. This has taken us all over the world to church leaders, to the Vatican, to higher-ups in different denominations, and we're planning a significant conference in 2006 in Jerusalem for this. But here we've, we've gained support from the Orthodox leaders in France who lead one of the world-renowned schools. We were actually talking with the Orthodox bishop in Africa, and uh, he was a bit cold. And then when we said we were friends with Olivier de Clément, he said, oh, I'm friends with him too. Toledo, Spain. Some of our prayer journeys where the worst decisions came down against Jewish believers. This is in Rome when we prayed there around the Arch of Titus, which celebrated the destruction of Jerusalem. Patty put Constantine Arch there. That should have said Titus Arch. But what can you do? Benedictine Abbey in Turvey, England. And there is Nicaea where the Second Council of Nicaea precluded Jewish life. It was something. And there is Bob Weiner at TJC2 in Dallas, Raleigh, Washington. Jack Hayford is part of this effort with us. It's kind of an amazing thing, the numbers that have become part of this. So this gives you a little idea of what we're doing in Cyprus, where we had our board meeting in Jerusalem, meeting with leaders of Jerusalem Messianic Jewish congregations. And so we're asking you to pray for champions, for church leaders who are going to champion this vision, that they are going to be spokesmen for it, that they're going to seek to see it funded, and that what they're going to be champions for is the whole scope of worship and prayer, which is the basis of doing it, for us to see housing and living and office and transportation, for the whole disciple school where we need building, teachers, tuition, the Jerusalem Congregation, and the Healing Center. Give liberally. Anybody wants to write that million-dollar check, we can use it today. All right, can we put the lights back on? I am not a great visionary. I see truth, and then I want to see it lived out. That's about it. And these doors have opened, and we've walked through them, and God has been extremely gracious to us and has given us a lot of fruit in the Jewish community. So we're really, really blessed by that. 
If you would like to be on our mailing list, please take one of these cards. Can you help us with this? Who else would want to help? Can I have a volunteer? Just raise your hand. Thank you so much. All right, now I'm charged to give a teaching. Got an hour to give a teaching, and you can give some questions and answers too. I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts. We're trying to speak about the biblical evidence that Israel still counts, which evidence cannot be gainsaid, cannot be gotten around, cannot be rejected, cannot be refuted, that Israel is still in the center of God's plans and that Jewish believers in Yeshua are still part of the nation of Israel as well as part of the body of believers. And you have friends that are into replacement theology who believe that the church has replaced Israel and Israel is not significant and they really think that Jewish believers who continue to live a Jewish life are barking up the wrong tree. How many here uh, need a card? Raise your hand if you didn't get a card and you want one. We'll collect them at the end. Terrific. Any extra cards, just bring them back up to me. By the way, you're going to get a newsletter, a teaching newsletter that is just wonderful with articles with Asher, myself, Moisha Morrison, Eitan Shishkoff. We all write in this newsletter that you're signing up for. But if you, you're doing it with me here in the room, you'll get my personal newsletter as well. So one over here. All right. Just as a little bit of an introduction... In the scholarly world, the view that the church has taken the place of Israel and is now the new and true Israel, and that Israel now loses its status and becomes ordinary, so Israel is like any other nation. Jewish people can be saved just like any other nation, but the church now is God's people, period, and Israel is not. This particular view in scholarly circles is not called replacement theology, But another term is used for it. Does anybody know what the term is in the world of scholarship? Yes? Supersessionism. Supersessionism, meaning that the church supersedes Israel. Supersessionism. Now, one of the problems that Christians have, one of the reasons why they want to become proponents of replacement theology or supersessionism, is they fear being disinherited. If Israel still counts, then that means I'm not significant. And so there is a fear of the loss of significance. And this sometimes is given credibility by the way Messianic Jews and Christian Zionists act. They act as though the only thing that counts on the earth is Israel. That the only thing that counts on the earth is being Jewish. But God loves every nation. And he says of the bride of believers, the bride who we are, the bride of the Messiah, that we have a status in him and an inheritance in him, that we will rule with him, that we were seated, that we were seated with him in heavenly places, and that we have a status in Yeshua that is second to none in being part of the bride. The issue is not status 
over against the Jewish people. The issue is that among the nations of the earth, Israel is to be the chief of the nations, and that Israel has a parallel and intersecting purpose with the bride of the Messiah for world redemption, and that the Jewish believer is part of both. The Jewish believer is both part of the identity of the bride of the Messiah, the one new man, and part of the identity of the nation, because he pulls the two together, anticipating that in the age to come, Israel and the nations will be one under the rule of the Messiah. So the ruling bride of the Messiah that includes Jew and Gentile has a privilege of rulership in the age to come, but is a prophetic anticipation of Israel and the nations becoming one under the Messiah's rule. Are you with me? But because believers through Messiah, through faith in Messiah, become the children of Abraham by faith. And like Abraham, they leave paganism and they come into a walk with God by faith, paralleling the life of Abraham. They also enter into like promises with Israel, not in every exact regard the same. So God doesn't promise to the whole Christian church that they're going to inherit the land of Israel, although some have taught that. But the promises are sufficiently parallel that some of the things that are said about Israel are also said of the body of believers, and this is what causes confusion. For example, Exodus chapter 19.6 says of the Jewish nation, you are a chosen people, a priesthood to God. And Peter applies that to all believers and says, you are a royal people, a chosen nation, a priesthood of God. We have to understand that the New Testament does not teach replacement theology, but it does teach addition theology. And sometimes Christian Zionists and Messianic Jews forget addition theology, and they have a reverse replacement theology where Israel replaces the church. Isn't that true? So what we're talking about is addition theology. In addition to Israel, there is the people gathered from all nations that with the Jewish believers constitute the bride of the Messiah, and they have similar promises, parallel promises, and they have a destiny and status that is the highest that can be attained, in addition to. So you can say you believe in addition theology. Now, one of the things that we want to understand is that it is difficult sometimes in talking to replacement theology people to prove that the New Testament refutes them because the New Testament doesn't have lots of passages that detail God's promises for Israel, that talk about Israel's destiny. And therefore, oftentimes, we will receive this question. If Israel is so important, and if the return to the land is so important, how come the New Testament doesn't say anything about it? Have you heard that? And what you have to understand is 
the New Testament doesn't say a lot about it explicitly because it simply assumes the validity of the Hebrew Scriptures. The New Testament doesn't approach the issue. The writers of the New Testament don't approach the issue as though they have to repeat what's already clearly established in the straightforward understanding of the Hebrew Bible. That's the assumption. And that assumption permeates the New Testament, but it underlies the text. It's not explicit in many of the texts, but it underlies the texts. For example, when the New Testament was written, the Jewish people were still in the land of Israel. So why would they be emphasizing a return to the land of Israel? It wouldn't make too much sense. But on the other hand, the New Testament does talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, 39. Get this verse down. We're not going to emphasize it. But when Yeshua says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to you, how often I would have gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chickens, but you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is the first really important text in establishing that replacement theology is wrong. Because Yeshua says here, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets, not O Israel, Israel. And there's a very significant difference. Because Jerusalem represents the leadership uh, the leadership cast of the Jewish nation, the establishment, just like we would say, oh, Washington, Washington, whose politicians lie about each other and squander our money in the bureaucracy. Not, oh, America, America. And when Yeshua says, you will not see me again until you say, that verse indicates that there will come a time when somebody's going to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and address it to Yeshua. Who's going to say it? The leadership of the Jewish people, and that leadership is assumed to be where? In Jerusalem. The battle that we're fighting is the battle ultimately for Israel's governmental leaders, which can include religious and political leaders, to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And for that passage to be fulfilled, our people have to be in the land and Jerusalem has to be a significantly enough Jewish city for them to represent the nation as its capital and to cry out to Yeshua. It's hard to deal with Matthew 23, 39 in a replacement theology way. It's hard to deal with Luke 21 in a replacement theology way. Because in Luke 21, we read, Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That means it will come to an end. Jerusalem will be trodden down until... But there's coming an end to that until the end of the time of the Gentiles. Now, what is the time of the Gentiles? 
To the best of our knowledge, time of the Gentiles means that international affairs are determined without regard to there being a Jewish nation among the nations that is part of that determination. So that the times of the Gentiles have now come largely to an end. Maybe it was in 1967. Maybe it's when the temple is rebuilt. The scriptures are vague. I'm not dogmatic about these things. But the issue is that the trodden down by the Gentiles comes to an end. And some of the Gentiles are not happy about it. Can we get more of these lights back on? We, we got them off, but now we're not getting them all back on, and we could see a little bit better if we had more of them. Lighting is always a wonderful puzzlement, isn't it? Well, now we're getting them off. Whoops. Now we're getting them brighter. Oh, yes, we're getting them. Wonderful. I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're just going over the key passages here. One of the really important things in Bible study is to understand the context of the book of Acts. The first century Jewish context. Jewish people who were believers in the whole of the scriptures that existed at that time, because the Sadducees didn't believe the whole of the scriptures at that time, Jewish people, had a particular understanding which we would call a last days scenario. A last days scenario. They read the prophets and their understanding went something like this. And by the way, Orthodox Jews today still have the exact same view. There is coming a time of great world upheaval. Israel is going to be in a very difficult situation of duress. But in that situation of duress, Jewish people will have come to God in the right heart to such an extent that when the nations invade Israel and seek to destroy God's people and to take over her inheritance, God will intervene in such a mighty way that it will be greater than the Exodus. It will be greater than any other event in history. And it will so demonstrate the glory of God that the nations of the world will be converted and come to the knowledge of God. That is the last day scenario. And you will read that in Isaiah chapter 25 and 26 and 27. You'll read the same scenario in Isaiah chapter 11. You'll read the same thing in Zechariah chapter 12 and Zechariah 14, in Joel chapter 3, in Amos chapter 9. This is repeated again and again in the prophets. The Jewish people came to believe that when this glorious deliverance took place, takes place, it will be under the leadership of the son of David, the Messiah. So the Messiah is especially connected to this in Isaiah chapter 11. So this is the backdrop for the disciples' question in Acts chapter 1, because they had read the prophets, and although it was a very wonderful thing for them to have a miracle-working rabbi, 
who was the Messiah, and it was a wonderful thing for him to rise from the dead indeed. They were looking for this to happen. All the major Jewish sects in the first century, except for the Sadducees, believed that if we could just get the Jewish people to do the right thing, the Messiah would come and would bring this glorious deliverance and revelation of himself. So Israel, therefore, becomes a key to the redemption of the world. And by the way, this is, per, this is, this is exactly right eschatology because it is exactly written in the prophets. Are you with me? So it's a very simple eschatology. Israel comes to God in a very deep and full way. The nations invade. Israel under the Messiah is delivered. The glory of God is revealed. The nations repent. They get rid of their idols. And the whole of the world is converted into the kingdom of God. That is the Jewish eschatological hope. So when the disciples gather on the Mount of Olives, they say this to Yeshua. Verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to restore the rule of God to Israel? Are you going to bring the age to come? Are you going to fulfill the hope of the prophets? They're standing on the Mount of Olives. They're looking across the valley. They're seeing the golden gate in which Messiah is to enter. The Messiah had entered Jerusalem before, and they thought on Palm Sunday, if that was the day, when they entered Jerusalem and the children were crying out and the adults and they were having this celebration, crying out at Hosanna, they thought this was the occasion of taking over. And now they say to the resurrected Lord, and can you imagine their excitement thinking they're going to go in and take over Jerusalem with the resurrected Messiah in front of their leader, in, in front of their band. Can you imagine the excitement? We're unstoppable now. Yeshua marching back into Jerusalem with us. Forty days after his resurrection. Can you imagine the excitement, the picture? And Yeshua does not fulfill their hopes at this point. Instead, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, Replacement theology almost always says of this passage, Oh, those carnal disciples, they were still looking for an earthly kingdom. Didn't they get it yet that this is not what Jesus was about? How many have heard that taught? But that is not in the text. It's eisegesis. Would somebody tell me what eisegesis is? You're reading into the text something that's not there. And it's a tradition of interpretation in these circles. He does not say that their question is wrong. In fact, his answer assumes that their question is correct 
and that what they expect will happen someday. The issue is not what they expect being wrong. The issue is the timing. Isn't that what the text says? Look at the text. You know, one of the hard things we have with replacement people is their unwillingness to look at the text and read it straightforwardly. The issue is the timing. They didn't get the timing. It's not now. But you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you. So it's still future what you're looking for. But the kingdom will be restored to Israel. They will come into her place in that kingdom. Do you see that this is an important text for what we're dealing with? But the whole book of Acts assumes this. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? I've got to move on a little faster because there are other passages I have to deal with. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, and then what happens? They begin to witness to the power of God in Jerusalem. Now, Yeshua said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I want you to understand something that may be shocking to you, and that is the disciples did not understand Yeshua's words to mean that they were to engage in a mission to the Gentiles. They did not understand that. They understood that Judea, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth had to do with the Jewish people, and maybe we could stretch as far as the Samaritans, but even that wasn't clear until Philip, that, that, that Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth had to do with the Jewish people who were spread over the uttermost parts of the earth because two-thirds of the Jewish people did not live in the land of Israel. So this is how they understood the words of Jesus. They understood the words of Yeshua exactly in the same context as eschatology was understood in the first century. They understood it to be that they were going to uh, bring Israel to the right place before God, and then they would be delivered and the glory of God would be revealed just as we read or referred to in Isaiah chapter 11, 25, 26, 27, etc., etc. If we can get Israel to bow the knee to Yeshua, and that was their program, a different program than the Pharisees and the Essenes, if we can get people to bow the knee to Yeshua and embrace Him as the Messiah King, then He will return, then we will see the mighty deliverance from the nations, and then we will see the glory of God. That was their perspective in the book of Acts. They had not yet put it all together. And this is why you read in chapter after chapter, there is no mission to the Gentiles. The first, the, the early chapters of the book of Acts are absolutely clear that all of the disciples had no replacement theology. They only thought that the nations would come to the knowledge of God after Israel embraced Yeshua. The assumption permeating the whole text, implicit in all of these texts, is anti-replacement theology. Can you see it? Only when you get to Acts chapter 9 do you see God beginning to produce a sea change in their understanding because when Rav Shaul, the most orthodox persecutor, is knocked to the ground by the brightness of the light of God and sees that he had been persecuting Yeshua himself by persecuting his believers. Uh-oh, I think I missed it. 
do we begin to see the different intention that God has? We so assume this that we don't understand what a radical change of direction this was for the disciples. Shaul then is prophesied over and told that he is going to have a mission to the Gentiles. But this mission to the Gentiles will not be accepted unless God supernaturally convinces the apostles that it is to be accepted. How does he convince them? He convinces them by giving Peter the vision of the sheets coming down from heaven, right? And telling Peter to eat lobster and crayfish and shrimp and ham. Now, you understand Peter never did eat it. Because the point of the vision was not that Jewish people should now give up their hang-ups about non-kosher food, but that they shouldn't consider Gentiles who are seeking God to be unclean to them. And so because of this vision, Peter is willing to travel to Caesarea, to the house of Cornelius, and to preach the good news to them. And the Spirit of God falls on them before they're baptized in water. Which was a shock because Peter had it all worked out. Believe, be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And that is the normal way it, I think, should still happen generally among us. But here they had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're prophesying, we're speaking in tongues before they were in the water. And what Peter says is, Quick, get them into the water. They've already got the Holy Spirit. Well, that's sort of what he said, isn't it? Who can forbid water, seeing that these have received like gift as us? And I think the implication is, quick, get them into the water. They've already got the Holy Spirit. Now, I think Peter didn't even quite realize the totality of what was happening. He was carried along beyond his theology. He was carried along beyond his understanding. And then he comes back to Jerusalem and he has to face the question of the other apostles, what, have you lost your mind, Peter? What are you doing going to the house of Gentiles and preaching the gospel to them? And Peter said, you know, eschatology is a confusing thing sometimes. I thought if I didn't go, I might be left behind. No, 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 he didn't. Oh, man. Peter tells the story of how the Holy Spirit fell on them. He tells the story of how he got there through these visions. And the conclusion of the disciples is, well, what do you know? God has granted to the Gentiles the gift of the Holy Spirit. This was a surprise to them. But Acts chapter 1 through 10 is incomprehensible in the context of replacement theology. See, God never contradicts the, 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 the hope that the disciples have about the future for Israel and the nations. It's just God adds to it now a Gentile mission that's going to be part of affecting Israel's destiny. The church is going to be a key instrument in helping Israel to fulfill her destiny. And the church also is going to be part of that key in seeing the nations come to the knowledge of God. This is the mystery that was not before revealed. 
But it's not a replacement kind of mystery. It's an addition to what was already in the prophetic texts. And so, when Paul goes out, he is able to bring back from his travels, after he has gone out, he is able to bring back from his travels to Jerusalem the report of the same kinds of things happening to Gentiles that happened in Peter's experience with Cornelius. And by the way, this really causes a radical change in our view of the church. The disciples understood the legitimacy and reality of the church spreading among the Gentiles on the basis of the fact to quote John Wimber, that stuff happened. If stuff did not happen, they would have never have received the legitimacy of the mission to the Gentiles. Do you understand that? Somehow, our theology hasn't comprehended how absolutely charismatic the theology of the New Testament is. Through and through. But now they've got a problem. What is it that we are to do with the Gentiles? Should we convert them to Judaism? Because there was a large group of Jewish people who felt that the only way Gentiles could be saved is to fully convert to Judaism and live a Jewish life. There was another group of Jews in the first century who felt that was wrong. That Jews who believe in Jesus, still have time, should not be forced to convert. But instead, the Gentile is called to embrace what is called today universal moral law, or the universal dimensions of Torah. The universal dimensions of Torah is something that was already being worked out in Jewish debate in the first century. There's a book by a professor at Cambridge that's very helpful on this called Jewish Law in Gentile Churches and how the apostles began to apply to the Gentile churches not the whole law, but the dimensions of law that were perceived as universal. This becomes sort of codified in the, in the Mishnah in the second century, at the end of the second century, but it's already in the writings that will make up the Mishnah or in the oral law, uh, and it becomes called the Noachide Laws the seven laws that are required of Gentiles. But it really was more than that. So, you know, when you read Acts chapter 15, they're not saying in Acts chapter 15 now, the Gentiles must abstain from uh, blood, they must abstain from that as sacrifice to idols and from immorality, but they can dishonor their mother and father and they can steal and they can murder. Acts chapter 15 only adds some things in Gentile communities that they wouldn't have already understood as standard in the Roman Empire. Because, you see, Roman ethics already confirmed a lot of what was in the Torah. The Romans taught monogamous marriage and fidelity. Did you know that? The Romans taught honoring your father and mother. The Romans taught you shall not steal. The Romans taught you shall not bear false witness. 
Acts chapter 15 is an addition to what would have been understood universally as ethical in the Roman world. And this is why Paul saw there was already a high representation of Torah in the Roman world. And he spoke about it in Romans chapter 1 and 2 when he talked about the Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses yet show that they perceive the law and it's written on their hearts. So Acts chapter 15 begins to say... But it will conclude the saying in Acts chapter 21. But it begins to say that, you know, there is distinction in the body of believers. There are those that are called from among the nations, and they are not covenantally responsibility to keep the whole Torah, but only those dimensions of it that are perceived as universal. But then there is the Jewish people who have a national identity and cultural responsibility as their witness in the world to live out the totality of Torah as it can be lived out in the New Covenant order. But it's in the New Covenant order. And so we read in Acts chapter 15, it is my judgment, verse 19, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God Instead, we should write to them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. The Acts 15 decision assumes a distinction of Jewish calling and Gentile calling within one body of Christ. Jewish people being called to continue to live and identify as part of their nation. And there's never one word in the New Testament to contradict that. But the Acts 15 decision, once again, is incomprehensible in the context, would be incomprehensible in the context of replacement theology. If you have replacement theology, then it would be confusing. It would be theological, theologically Uh, deceptive, it would lead you down the wrong path to say that Jewish people, on the other hand, are to continue to live as Jews. This becomes even more clear when you get to Acts chapter 21. Now, there's a little context here of Acts chapter 21. Replacement people believe that in Acts chapter 21, when Paul professed to live fully according to the Torah, that he was compromising the gospel. That this is one of the sad chapters of Paul's life. How many have ever heard that taught? Anybody's ever heard that taught? Only a couple of you. Okay, let me see the hands. I'm, I'm curious. How many have heard that Paul was compromising in Acts 21? You know, he came under the pressure of James and, and the disciples and It just was too much, and his ethnicity got the better of him, so he professed that his ethnic identity was important when it wasn't, and he compromised. This guy that was beaten and stoned and sang songs in prison comes to Jerusalem, and now he does this big compromise. One person put it this way in the charismatic world. There was an easier way for Paul to have gotten to Rome than the way that he did. And by his compromising in Acts 21, he ended up getting imprisoned. And so he ended up getting to Rome as a prisoner instead of as a free man. And it's because he compromised with Judaism. Have you ever heard that teaching? No. It's out there. 
I'm not going to tell you the guy who said that. He's famous in the prophetic movement. I'm not going to say. No. I'll tell Mike Bickle, and if he wants to tell you again. So, <laughs> how many have ever heard that one? Have you heard that one, Fred Lessons? I'll tell you who it is after. Because you're a colleague, I'll tell you. Huh? But I know who, but anyway, I know who said that. But at any rate, now, what's usually not understood here is that when Paul professes to live fully as a Jew and to abide by the whole Torah, and we'll read the passage in a minute, it's by going up to Jerusalem and paying the price for an offering for four guys who are completing a Nazarite vow. There is really nothing more intensively Jewish or traditional or Torah-based or Old Testament-based that you could do than a Nazarite vow. You don't drink wine. You don't eat grapes. You grow your hair long. If anybody here is called to do a Nazarite vow, you are going to look a little strange in your church. But you see, here is the amazing thing. Shaul took a Nazarite vow when he was not under any of this pressure. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, I believe it is. Let me look. In Acts chapter 18. No. 18, 18, 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for uh, Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed... He had cut his hair off at Crenshia because of a vow he had taken. If the Torah was done away with in the way that Christians think, not that we're, we are not under the Mosaic Covenant, that has changed. But if the application of the Torah is not made in the New Covenant, as some people think, Paul taking a Nazarite vow is unthinkable. And therefore, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he was completing his own vow by going up to the temple. It wasn't because he was under the pressure from James. And listen to what he's told, and this is what Paul is professing by doing it. And the words are just amazing, and once again, it's unthinkable in the context of replacement theology. Verse 24, let's... let's, let's put it into a bigger context. I think we have time. Verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. They said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the Torah. They have been informed of you that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to the customs. The implication of these words is, of course, Paul, we understand that you haven't done this. This is Paul's opportunity to say, well, you know, guys, you really haven't understood my theology. I really do teach that there is now no difference between Jew and Gentile, not only with regards to salvation, which you thought I was teaching in Galatians chapter 3, 
But I teach that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile in any regard anymore. And now that Yeshua has come, we have to do away with these old things and no longer circumcise our children and no longer live as distinct because we're all part of the third race that is neither Jew or Gentile and we have to give up doing all this Jewish stuff. But that isn't what he does. Because he didn't teach Jews to forsake their identity. We read, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. And then he says, do what we have told you. There are four men who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you but that you yourself are living in obedience to Torah. Translate obedience to Torah in this context of living a Jewish life. And living a Jewish life means that you are professing by your life, by your teaching, that the Jewish people still count and that you are part of them counting and that you are part of their destiny. I don't see any legitimate way to get out from under the implications of that text. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should, etc., and it repeats Acts 15. The next day Paul took the men, purified himself along with them, went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. If that wasn't enough, when you come to the end of the book of Acts, at the, at the, at the end of the book, chapter 28. We read in verse 17, Three days later he called together the leaders of the Jews in Rome. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors. That's the end of his life. Today there is a general consensus in scholarship that the book of Acts was written to show the nature of a reconciled body of Jew and Gentile but who lived distinctively and did not have to live the same lifestyle in all regards. And that that was one of the purposes in Luke's writing. Not only was it an apologetic for the Roman world, but it was to establish the right order of relationship between Jew and Gentile in one body, having distinctive lifestyle and calling. The book of Acts itself is a bulwark against supersessionism or replacement theology. But so is Romans chapter 9 to 11, which you're more familiar with. And of course, I don't have to repeat what has been taught here last night. I can just mention it uh, briefly, and I will when I get to chapter 11, but I'm not going to teach much about chapter 11 here. The teaching of chapter 11 is absolute and clear, and there's no way around it. I want to give you some other chapters and other verses. In Romans 9. I speak the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because I could wish myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers. 
those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now, Paul here obviously shows himself to be ethnically prejudiced. He has slipped into an ethnic mode that just does not fit the universal quality of what we are to be as Jew and Gentile with no distinctions. Isn't that what the replacement person says? Sometimes. Where he says, well, he ethnically loves his people even though they don't count anymore. How can you read this passage that way? How can the passage be read as if Israel no longer counts, but Paul still really cares a lot because he happens to be of this ethnicity? Now, I want you to catch me and tell me what I'm reading. If I read something the wrong way, you have your translations now. I'm going to go back again. I could wish myself cut off for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs was the adoption of sons. Theirs was the divine glory. Theirs was the covenants, the receiving of the Lord, the temple worship, and the prophets. Theirs were the patriarchs, and from them was traced the human ancestry of Messiah. But now that they haven't embraced him, it's all over for them. Did I say something wrong here? Or is the tense really clear in Greek that this is an ongoing, continuous relationship of the people with God through covenants that they still have as part of their heritage and inheritance? The Jewish nation still is constituted of the children of God. The Jewish nation still has glory and will have the ultimate revelation of the glory of God. The Jewish nation still has the covenants of promise, which promise them an everlasting, continued existence. And when he says covenants, that includes the covenant of the land. No, the New Testament does not talk about the land. At the time Paul was writing, they were living in the land. They weren't trying to come back to the land. But the promise of this being our land is part of what's included in this issue of the covenants. And so in Romans chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might be saved, for I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not according to knowledge. Romans 11, I ask then, did God reject His people? How does He call them His people if in now the new covenant has come? There's no difference. He says, by no means. And then He says, I was an Is- an, a child of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. No, he says, I am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people. And then he tells us that the situation of Israel's blindness is partial and temporary. How can the nation have a partial and temporary blindness which will be removed from them nationally if as a nation they no longer count? If God has switched from concern for nations and now only He is concerned with individuals who in aggregate make up the body of believers, a terribly individualistic understanding of the gospel that doesn't fit the corporate realities of biblical thought, how would it be 
in God's plan at all now that he's just saving individuals irrespective of their corporate identities, how would it make any sense to care about or to prophesy about a time when the blindness would be removed from a nation if that nation didn't count anymore? The verse that absolutely makes this clear is 11.29. But before we get to that, 11.15 is amazing for it says, If the rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the nation coming back to believe in Yeshua gives life from the dead to the whole world, they count. This is a significant thing. Do you think life from the dead is a significant thing to be given to the whole world? I think it is. And if that's based on the nation coming back to God and being accepted, then it matters. Then they count. Obviously, replacement theology is a spiritual deception. Then in Romans 11, 28 and 29, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as the election is concerned, Election, that's a big theological word. I somehow remember in my Presbyterian days studying a guy named John Calvin. Election was a big word in Calvinist theology. And here we read that election still is spoken of the Jewish people who have not yet said yes to Yeshua. But the Messianic Jews are also included in here because Paul says, only part have been blinded. Israel has experienced hardening in part. But as far as the election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts and qualities. Speaking of Israel here are irrevocable. And this is misapplied in the charismatic world tremendously by saying, well, no matter what a person does, no matter how they sin, they still have the calling because God's gifts and call is without repentance. So the pastor man, he leaves his wife, marries his secretary, leaves his second wife, marries his new secretary, leaves his secretary, marries his bookkeeper. Well, you know, the call of God is irrevocable. No, he ain't called anymore. He's done that. He's, uh, he's gone. He's not qualified to be in ministry anymore. You have an illegitimate divorce and remarriage as a believer, ministry's over for you. You can get to a depth of repentance and be forgiven and be restored to fellowship, but forget it. You're not called to ministry any longer as an elder or above. But with regards to Israel, the gift and call of God to Israel is irrevocable. Now, there are other passages that also show the same kind of dimension of chosen. So I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Once again, would not fit replacement theology. We're going to look at a few of these and then we'll have questions. Because I want to get done quick, 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 quick. Important verse. Verse 17. Chapter 7, 17. Nevertheless, each one of you should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned him and which God has called him. In other words, there are different assignments in God. There are different callings in God. Do you see that there? This is the rule I lay down. The rule I lay down in all the churches. 
Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. He's not just talking about literally, physically. He's talking about living as if you're not a Jew. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandments is what counts. But for a Jew, God's command is to be circumcised. By the way, isn't that a very pro-Torah verse, keeping God's commandments? Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be uncircumcised, should not become uncircumcised. Now, there again you see the same matter. Now, because Paul writes to predominantly Gentile churches, he doesn't give significant directions to how Jews should live. It's assumed that Jews will know how they're called to live. Always assumed. Galatians chapter 2 One even sees that Jewish life is connected to apostolic relationship. In verse 7 of Galatians chapter 2, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. So therefore, the primary governmental oversight of the Jewish believers was to be under Jewish apostolic oversight. Isn't that interesting? Now let's try this one. Galatians chapter 5. Usually read to teach against circumcision for everybody, but it's not teaching against circumcision for everybody. It's teaching against religious circumcision for Gentiles. Let's look at this one. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Messiah will be of no value to you at all. And he's talking to Gentiles who would do this to gain acceptance or to think it's part of salvation. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Messiah. Now, If a man is circumcised, he's obligated to obey the whole law. What did Paul profess in Acts chapter 21? That he obeyed the whole law. What did he profess in Acts chapter 28 at the end of his whole life? That he obeyed the whole law. Was Paul circumcised? Yes, he was circumcised. Galatians not talking about Jews not being circumcised because they have the responsibility of that covenant. He's talking about Gentiles not being circumcised. And he's telling Gentiles that the only reason that they would do this is if they think there's some superior place in being circumcised that would lead them to the whole law. It's unthinkable that Galatians chapter 5 would fit into a context of replacement theology. One other verse, Revelation chapter 7. And I'll close with this. And I'll stay behind for a couple of minutes for questions. I'm sorry I'm not leaving more time for questions, but, I mean, they're just, you get these verses, it's amazing. We read in terms of the tribulation period, Revelation 7, verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Replacement theology sees the 144,000 as what? Would somebody tell me or who? The church. It's symbolic of the church. 
Is it possible? Brothers and sisters, it is not possible. Let me describe, because it says, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, etc., etc. The naming of the tribes shows that this is a Jewish-Israelitish thing. It is not the church. And one has no potential explanation, no actual explanation, as to the...